Hi, welcome to the 50th episode of Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are finishing our discussion of the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, which is Lauren Stern's novel, um, kind of published in nine volumes between 1759 and 1767 about a dude who gets his nose smashed at birth by a pair of forceps and gets his dick caught in a window and a bunch of other shit too. <laughs> so good. Uh, so what did we like about the second half of Tristram Shandy? Well, I, I am happy to lead that off. But first, uh, in honor of our 50th episode, uh, which is amazing, uh, still, still as much fun as when we started. Oh, yeah. and, but I just really wanted to impress upon our listeners just how unbelievable that number is. Uh, so I have compiled some extremely cool facts about the number 50 or like things of which there are 50 or whatever. Then uh, <laughs> <so laughs> it'd be great. So buckle up. Here we go. Okay. If I were to pay you guys a dollar every second, it would take almost a minute for me to pay you $50. <laughs> Actually, 83.3% of a minute to be exact. Okay. Um, a stack Shit. of 50, a stack of $51 bills. Yeah. It would tower over two inches high. Oh, holy shit. <laughs> okay. okay. No, this awesome. gets better. This gets better. This gets better. If you're 50 Earth years old, you would be 207 years old on Mercury because, you know, it's just cl- – Where the sun goes. Planet. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> the way the planet goes, the sun stays still. I know. <laughs> but you would only be you would only be 0.3 years old on Neptune, so that's not quite as impressive. Uh, <laughs> it's a tiny uh, wee babe. <laughs> Galaxy brain. I, I'm, I'm moving to Neptune. I'm getting old. Um, if you had 50 baseball players on your team – you would actually have like two teams because MLB only lets you have 26 players. Um, <laughs> and hey, Major League Baseball. <laughs> and, and, and speaking of sports, tennis, anyone? Okay, yeah. Um, I, I, I enjoy tennis. Um, well, in tennis' fucked up scoring system, there are point, points called 15, 30, and 40, but not 50. It's too high. They had to call it deuce <clears throat> instead for some reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Come on. And I, I promise I, I'm getting to the end here. Uh, it, it, this is this is much more in our wheelhouse. Anyway, 50 is half of the number of shitty fucking books Horatio Alger wrote. Uh, okay, that's wild. That's I don't. When did he find the time to be so terrible? <laughs> And almost twice the number of novels that Walter Scott wrote. And as we talked about, Scott wrote a lot of novels. So, yeah, anyway, you get the idea. Uh, 50 episodes. Yay, us. Congratulations, <laughs> <Wow>. us. <laughs> thank, thank you. A beautiful mind. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit just how long I've been planning that bit. But <laughs> I don't know. We're, we do so much embarrassing shit on this show. I feel like that's not that bad. Uh, what book are we talking about? Oh, right. My favorite, Tristan. Your favorite book. Oh, your favorite book. Oh, it's just your favorite book. Um, yeah. And so we are talking about the second half, the last 300 pages of this uh, delightful behemoth. And, and How I, many 50s is that? Uh, six. six. It's six. That's right. Yeah, 650. So. Tristan, I bet your kid knew that before you or I did. I'm sure he did, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. But yeah, and to be honest, I actually think I like the second half of the book even more than the first, which is saying something given just how awesome even the opening chapter of this thing is. 
Stern was getting very sick as he wrote these later volumes, uh, you know, tuberculosis. And there's definitely a sense of a man who has no fucks left to give, which is pretty awesome. He, he's not even bothering to try to hide the dick jokes anymore, although maybe oh. he didn't really do that in the first half anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, yeah, as, as Megan but, said. But less, uh, you know, there's a, there's a <laughs> spectrum <laughs> that's true no that i and i think yes i i think i think we definitely passed uh pa- passed an important uh important thing here and uh in stern's uh, giving a fuck are there 50 dick jokes did you count them i'm sure there are many more than 50 dick jokes there's 600 pages in the novel and there's almost a dick joke on every page yeah that's true for instance you know as megan <laughs> said uh tristram gets accidentally circumcised by a window in this half which is just an incredible device to hang an entire novel around mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> um, so good. but i also think the fact that stern knew he was dying lends real pathos to this half in a way that is kind of beautiful and tragic even as the book itself remains all kinds of nuts and hilarious we'll talk about book seven which starts with tristram going to france to flee death and his quote vile cough or quote meet him full in the face and ends with this sort of ecstatic frenzy uh, and it's just kind of amazing so yeah the second half is the funniest half of a very funny book i think but it's also generally full of feels yeah we love the feels. <laughs> True, we really do. All right. That so ribald and body a book should be imparted upon this innocent podcast is a jest and a pity to its able listeners. Courage, <laughs> gentle listener. I scorn it. Tis enough to have thee in my power. As we three debtors and sinners, a lot of us thrust this riotous volume and its proliferation of ding-dongs upon you, we will endeavor to speak justly of Larry Stern's vast and smutty undertaking. By the by, we were speaking of radishes. My opinion on them is thus. Red ones, no. White ones, yes. Pickled ones, undoubtedly. The unlearned listener might at this moment wonder about my slight digression from the matter at hand, but she might do well to disabuse herself of the notion that a podcast is of an obligation to speak only to its stated topic. Were we to dedicate this chapter and perhaps another to the relative merits of white radishes, we would find ourselves learning a great deal more about the epistemology of salad and the resemblance of radishes to boners and how the humble radish reflects upon notions of sentimentality. But for heaven's sake, let us not talk of radishes. Let us take the podcast straight before us. It is so nice and intricate a one. I beg we may take more care in our discussion of this brilliant tome and its viscous materials. (laughs) That was good. That was that was even better uh, than than your uh, homage to John Cleland at the beginning of the Fatty Hill episode. <laughs> I am doing my best. It's actually like really hard to imitate Lawrence Stern because of the like. Because it zigzags. Yeah, no, it, it does. I mean, he, it it, does. It's, it's so it's not just. He it's has not literal ju- drawings of it in the book. Yeah, right. No, I know. I mean, it, yeah, there, it's, it is kind of a, a, a style that you can't imitate. So so that on top of just uh, the delightfully bonkers 18th century sort of syntax. And, you know, why why have a why can a sentence not be longer than a paragraph? You know? Yeah, I mean, if it aren't aren't. Full stops for pussies. Like, let's be real. Pretty much. That's that's yeah. That's when things started to go downhill. You know, <laughs> readable prose. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly don't want to be able to read it. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I love it, and fuck you, people who are listening, because you don't get us. <laughs> mom you don't get us mom you don't get us mom none of you can tell me when to go to bed i set my own bedtime 
I love it. That's all. It's great. Well, you two uh, bitmeisters over there, two <laughs> just uh, just doing your bits. I am but a but a simple country reader, and um, and I just kind of have a compendium of of shit that's great in the second half that we probably won't get to talk about because it's too minor and absurd. So, mm. without further ado, is it about religious jerks? Because those are your fave. <laughs> they are my fave. But no, these are more like about my problematic faves, I guess. <laughs> and by problematic faves, I mean, okay, so they're in the second half of this book. There are things that include, but are not limited to. There are no limits whatsoever here. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there, are, there are no limits. No limits at all. Okay. So, there is, in this second half, a part where, where Tristram Shandy's dad talks about writing something into such a small circle that it fits into his mom's pussy. Boom. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. yep, yep, yep. When they tell the dad, uh, or when they tell the when they tell everybody about the about the accidental circumcision, well, Toby says, "Pardon me, no, fuck, who who tells? Um, fucking what's his nuts, Doctor Slot, Trim. Oh, Trim. Yeah, sorry, yes, uh, no. and Obadiah, the 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 servant. Uh, oh God, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, he goes up to Uncle Toby and says, "Pardon me, sir, we have something to tell you about your now dickless nephew." <laughs> It's good. We have babies having babies. More specifically, child geniuses who are so creepy and indigo child-esque that they were believed to be possessed. Mm -hmm. We have the Pen15 Club. I won't elaborate on that. (laughs) Um, We have a section that uh, is about fasting, but I think it's about no fat. The material here is very important. Yes. To fap or not to fap? That is the question. We have, oh, we have my, my, one of my favorite parts is the part where the dad says, my weird, tall child, Tristram, who looks like shit, needs leather pants. That's fine. Oh my God. I've forgotten so much of this great shit. Is it as good as Uncle Toby's fluffy red pants? Nothing, nothing, (laughs) nothing's really that good. Oh, yeah. That his ass is bursting out of because, you know, they're yep. from 20 years ago. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> sexy, sexy, sexy man. Uh, sexy Uncle Toby. Sexy Uncle Toby also really shows out in this section. Yeah. He says, it's not my fault. I've always been horned up for war. And then he goes off on a digression about how as a child, he cried the most over um, – over Hector in uh, the fucking Iliad and uh, called, got like kicked out of some school shit for calling Helen a bitch. Helen of Troy was. A- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he then, much like somebody from the Clinton Foundation, refers to war as the gathering of peaceful people with swords. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. I'm going to conclude just sort of in the middle here because I could go all fucking day with this shit. But. My man, Lawrence Stern, has never met a carriage that he didn't like to get weird in. Mm-hmm. This is like oh, here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Him. Yeah. So there's a carriage ride in which I believe that uh, some nun fingers a lady, mm-hmm. a mule mm-hmm. farted, yep. mm-hmm. and he had to stop a million times from getting too much diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> I yep. remember. Yep, that's right. 
So I think, I mean, I think we'll get to the rest of the important stuff, but I did want to emphasize the diarrhea. <laughs> no, definitely. And and Katie, I'm glad you mentioned the the, the getting get, getting uh, getting weird uh, in carriages. Uh, there, I'm going to talk a little bit about a sentimental journey today, which is his kind of follow up novel to Tristram Shandy. And I had forgot I I wasn't going to talk about this part, but there is this great scene early in the sentimental journey where he gets into a uh, carriage that has no horse attached to it with a, a young lady, and uh, the whole the the next chapter is all about the motion of the carriage. Carriage, which it's like you're this, you're talking oh, about goodness. fucking in the carriage, <laughs> yeah. Like, yep. so anyway, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how this got past the censors because there are moments that are much dirtier than if he had used the actual words. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get to those today. Yep. Well, I I can't wait. So today we are talking about the sentimental, both as a sort of theme and epistemology, and genre of novel we're talking about um what a dirty dirty man lawrence stern was <laughs> and how dirty the book is and the gender question and it's gonna be good so tristram that's not your name <laughs> nah. no. tristram mandy tristrampedia <laughs> 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 Hermes Trismegistus, yes. Um, Hermes Trismegistus. Yeah. What a good Wiki name. Wikipedia Tristan. <laughs> Tristan, will you give us the summary as best you can? Yes. And and weirdly, I think the second half of Tristram Shandy tries to cohere slightly more as a plot than the first, but like the, It has plots. It like, has plots. Plural, but it it plots. does. It does. Yeah. But you know, those plots, let's put some quotes around those, are still mainly extended dick jokes and a chance for Stern to be filthy and funny and talk about epistemology and biography and really whatever the fuck he wants. Um, but like, that's what the plot yeah. does. Whipping <laughs> your dick out. <laughs> yeah, that's what I call a plot. Yeah, I agree. Madam, why do you have such a silly nightgown? I don't know. Let's go on for several pages about it. <laughs> oh god so yeah t- uh, to to review the principal events of this half are one young tristram gets circumcised by a falling window he's peeing out of a hot widow gets really horny for uncle toby who is so innocent that he doesn't quote know the right end of a woman from the wrong as we learned last week um it's really important that you put quotes around that that, you know like that's not what we're saying that's literally what the book says that is literally what the book and what walter shandy the character says yes folks there are at least three good ends of a woman There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Lauren, Lauren Stern would very much appreciate that joke. That's true. He would, he would be into that. And, and Uncle Toby, poor Uncle Toby, also has some wartime injury to his penis that the novel construes as a serious impediment to banging. Again, not our claim. This is, you know, an 18th century novel claiming this. And uh, so, so somewhere in the middle, Tristram, who is either a small child or often not even born for most of the novel, suddenly he's middle-aged for a whole volume and goes to France, uh, you know, for the climate in order to help his tuberculosis. So I know this is like, as usual, let's just do a little path not trod. But um, do we know it's circumcision because then we're like, oh, his dick looks like a Jewish or Muslim one? 
That's what uh, what's his face says. Yeah. Yes, yes, um, y- yes. I, there, there. So there's that aspect, and I also think so. I mean, part of the humor, which we'll get the humor, which we'll get to, is like the window just cut off a little bit of his dick, but then the doctor is so incompetent that, <laughs> that okay. it suggested the rest of it goes away. Yeah, but yeah, there there is that sort of like othering kind of you know, like orientalizing sort of uh, quality to it as well, right? Um, because I was like, is that why they say circumcised? Because it's just a little bit like, I know it's weird to say like, oh, it's confusing what happens to this guy's wang, but. Yeah. You know, it is. No, it is. It, well, and, and and we'll talk to, it is also, it's also confusing about what happens to Uncle Toby's wang in the war, right? Like we know there's oh, an injury. Oh, for sure. But like, it's a groin injury. Yeah, exactly. So, but anyway, yeah, this, this is the ambiguity that the text is right for. So. Um, <laughs> That's ambiguous. Yes. Um, so, okay. I, I'm just going to go through the four books, uh, or five books, I guess real quick. Yeah. So, so book five begins with one of the novels, many extended digressions. This one, a bizarre story about quote whiskers, which actually seems to mean dick and balls. <laughs> so like, oh, uh, the balls. I, I, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the, uh, I'll give you what, why I'm saying that, uh, this is a quote from that digression. There is not a cavalier, madam of his age in Navarre continued the maid of honor, pressing the page's interest upon the queen that has so gallant a pair of what cried Margaret smiling <laughs> of whiskers said La uh, Fossus uh, with infinite modesty. Apologies for the French modesty. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, basically, this becomes yet another joke about how noses and specifically Tristram's smash nose mean dicks or lack thereof. And also, yes, further commentary on the instability of language and meaning and empiricism and how the fuck we know what we know. And yeah, I, so we could legit talk about just this chapter for a whole episode. But I doubt we're going to talk about it at all <laughs> because there's just so much other shit here. Um <laughs> Before we pass this by, are are we going to talk about the di- are we t- are we not talking about the dick and balls anymore? We know more <gasps> dick and balls. Well, no, we're going to talk about dick and balls, just like in different parts of the book. Okay, th- good because there's just there's so much to discuss with the with the dick and I'd like to oh, really yeah. get into. We the have dick not abandoned that no, topic. No, 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 no. That that's going to be very central to this episode. I'm just saying this this specific digression about whiskers that is yet another dick joke. I just I mean, hey, if you guys are into talking about that, we we can definitely do it. But I just I feel there are other there are, there are other places <laughs> that we'll probably spend time. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, no, for certainly. Yeah, right. And again, like, so this book, I don't know if I mentioned, is 600 fucking pages long. <laughs> so Worth it. It, it. No, it is. It is It is the best 600 oh, yeah. pages I've ever, I have ever spent. Yeah. Uh, so uh, other shit we learn in book five. Uh, oh, hey, Tristram's brother. Remember him? Neither do we. And his father only barely seems to. Uh, has <laughs> has died. Oh, shit. Uh, oh, Billy. N- we barely knew you. Billy. Bobby. Bobby. That's it. Really? Right? Yeah, it's Bobby. Yes. Yes. <laughs> See, there you uh, go. We're really barely knew right you, buddy. So, so Bobby died. Uh, no idea how. No one seems to care really how. Uh, you know, mainly what this um, tragedy or whatever serves as is an opportunity for Walter, the, the Shandy dad, to do classical elegy and forget to tell Mrs. Shandy that her son is dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we have this, this just amazing <laughs> oh, passage. My father was as proud of his eloquence as Marcus Tullius Cicero could be for his life. For aught I am convinced of, to the contrary at present, with as much reason. It was indeed his strength, 
and his weakness too. His strength, for he was by nature eloquent, not really, and his weakness, for he was hourly a dupe to it, and provided an occasion in life would but permit him to show his talents, or say either a wise thing, or a witty or a shrewd one, baiting the case of systematic misfortune, he had all he wanted. So amazing stuff, really. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, oh, also in this volume, we learn Walter is writing an education manual for Tristram that he calls the Tristrapedia, which he is, uh, much as Tristram will one day be in writing the autobiography that we are now reading, so slow and meticulous in producing that document uh, that life is outrunning his attempt to distill all his knowledge or, you know, let's call it that Walter. And you know, we're told every day, a page or two became of no consequence. <laughs> but what madam pray, are you about to laugh at Walter's folly? You must not for it also ends in tragedy. And what good sir is this tragedy? Will you see gentlewomen as Walter writes the Tristrapedia? Tristram is, quote, all that time totally neglected and abandoned to my mother. Or rather, uh, Stern tells us, Tristram was mainly left to the care of the maid, Susanna, who sets the toddler, Tristram, on a windowsill to take a piss, and the window promptly falls and cuts off the tip of his dick. Now, what? why did this happen? The window was shitty for a very specific reason. Pulleys! Pulley mishaps! <laughs> yes, we get right into that. <laughs> So what had happened was Uncle Toby and his servant, Corporal Trim, had taken the mechanism that holds the window, apparently it's a very complicated window, apart to make it artillery pieces for their mock siege cosplays we talked about last week. So Toby's hobby horse, which arises from his own grievous Johnson injury, produces at like a third, fourth, or fifth degree Tristram's own mortal wound. Not really a mortal wound, actually. We're about to drop this plot point almost completely. Uh, (laughs) And indeed, what is initially only a flesh wound becomes much worse through the incompetence of Dr. Slop, uh, that dipshit that Walter hired because he didn't trust Mrs. Shandy's woman midwife. So really a Shakespearean level of sort of tragedy and and complexity. Yeah. Uh, okay. But, but you can sort of forget about that. Cause we're kind of done with the, with what happened to Tristram's deck and we're on to other decks now. Yep. The, <laughs> the best, <laughs> the best part about the whole dick thing that that whole dick thing is when the dad and uncle Toby are talking about it and, uh, uncle Toby's good, sug- like, cause it's been blown up as a rumor, like about how much of his dick is gone. And uncle Toby's like, oh, we can solve this really easily. Just have him go in the middle of town pull his pants down, show everyone his dick, and then that'll settle it once and for all. Right. And the dad is like, eh, it wouldn't make a difference. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's true. Yeah, right. Because well, how, how can we trust our senses too, right? Just you, know, you need the neighbors to weigh in. Yeah. We need discourse. <laughs> we need we need see we need seed it. We need the physical evidence. It's you know it's a it's a fucking it's a, it's a system. It's a it's a system of ontology and epistemology and dicks. Yep. Um, <laughs> so facts. Okay. So at this point, we uh, yeah we we sort of walk away from the many hundreds of pages of narrative about Tristram's birth and early childhood. Book six clips along largely as a way of telling us more about Toby and Trim's backstory uh, when they were soldiers and. King William's Wars, which happened more than a decade before Tristram is born. Um, yeah, skim it. you can skim <laughs> this one. Uh, I think it's mainly notable for the story of Le Fever, which sort of yanks the sentimental front and center into the novel in a way that I don't think is really true of the first half. 
so Lefevre is a character uh, that we're briefly introduced to, and he's he's a he's a fellow war veteran who shows up in town. He's very sick. He has his young son in tow, and after a few of these maudlin scenes that show us just what sweethearts uh, Toby and Trim are, and you know Toby ends up adopting the kid when Lefevre dies. That is very sweet. It is no, yeah. it is, and and that's again. I mean, like, so we'll talk about this a lot. I think the sentimental is a source of humor, but I don't think it is like wholly dismissed as like absurd or laughable in this, no, totally. this book. So yeah, so Lefevre dies. Uh, but the main thing I want to mark here is the proximity of sentimentalism, uh, you know, high feeling and a good cry and all of that. And what the 18th century terms the body. So we're, we're told, and here's, here's where I'm going with this. We're told that Lefevre lost his young wife during a military campaign. And we have this fucked up weird ass quote. I was the ensign at Breda, uh, whose wife was almost killed with a musket shot as she lay in my arms in my tent. Except that doesn't seem to be the whole story, because a few paragraphs later, we have, quote, I remember, said my uncle Toby, sighing again, the story of the ensign and his wife, with a circumstance his modesty omitted, and particularly well that he, as well as she, upon some other account, I forget what, was universally pitied by the whole regiment. So, yeah, um, to, to translate, they were apparently fucking with the stray shot came through the tent and killed her, which I have to say, that's a pretty fucking dark joke there, Larry, you know? But what um, was she thinking about? <laughs> Because that's important. We get that in chapter one. Yes, that yeah, that's right. Well, what? Yeah, did she did she talk? Did she say something about a clock not being wound or whatever? Well, yeah, that's what you say before you fuck. Is you check if the clock's wound. This is what I've learned from this book. Yeah. Uh, Also, are we in a war zone? Right. (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) Uncle Toby doesn't know anything about that. No, nothing at all. But dear Uncle Toby. Um, and yeah, so I just wanted to mark this episode because, again, as I said, well, I think Stern takes the sentimental seriously. It's also like always already merging with the sexual and with the satirical and just the ridiculous as well. Um, okay. Uh, book seven. We're, we're, we're going to do these last three books kind of quick. Book seven. Uh, suddenly, Tristram is an adult and he has consumption. And it's it's here that he the Tristram kind of explicitly becomes Stern's alter ego. As as I've said, Stern had tuberculosis and and he was starting to get very sick by uh, 1765, which is when this volume came out. He had traveled to France for the warm climate to sort of help with his health, um, and that was a common treatment for people who could afford it during the period. And those travels became the basis both of Book 7 of Tristram Shandy and his his later novella, Sentimental Journey. And I actually think Book 7 is pretty heartbreaking and also beautiful um, and, and very funny, too. Uh, so in the first chapter, uh, we have this line, and when death himself knocked at my door, ye bade him come again, and in so gay a tone of careless indifference did you do it that he doubted of his commission. Um, so like that's sort of like laughing at death and running from death kind of becomes the ethos for this whole part. So Tristram travels through France having tons of fun, making tons of dirty jokes about, among other things, sexy nuns yelling at a jackass. Oh, <laughs> like, my virginity! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's what they say. I know. Yeah, we're always and- having to interrupt with what it really says. I thought you were just trying to find your virginity. <laughs> and probably banging in the carriage that they're riding in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty explicit that that's what they're that that's what they're doing. Uh, oh, oh, right, no, except it doesn't say that. It's it's in our dirty mind. He does that. He does that uh, that thing a lot, which you'll remember from last from last. It's your episode. problem, Prudence. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My sincere apologies for being a pervert. 
Uh, yes, exactly. And so the volume ends with Tristram doing this feverish and very hoardy dance with a Languedoc peasant woman. Quote, just disposer of our joys and sorrows, cried I, why could not a man sit down in the lap of content here and dance and sing and say his prayers and go to heaven with this nut brown maid? So like the whole volume is infused with this deep pathos, but also exuberance that is, I think, the sentimental and the satiric and definitely the erotic and like everything else in between. Okay. Book eight and nine, the horniest books in the entire <laughs> the entire oh, novel. Yeah. <laughs> Again, now we're back before Tristram is born. He's kind of out of his own narrative at this point for the rest of the novel. Out and of we, fucks to give. Out of fucks to give. And we get to the widow Wadman's 11 years long efforts to bang Uncle Toby. She uh. even, and this, this is heroic shit. She even pretends to be interested in his dumbass model forts and war reenactments so she can finger oh. his maps. And yes, oh. that that is exactly what the novel tells us she was oh, doing. Oh, lady. And and maps. Yeah, that's that's what that means, right? Um find, find someone who's lady, let him go and find someone to finger your maps. Don't always be worried about <laughs> fingering his maps. Oh well, and she isn't quite even sure what his maps in, entail, so it, which we'll get to. Um well, she wants to finger him, so <laughs> and he took it like a lamb. <laughs> oh he did um so yeah these volumes like uh among other things serve as an opportunity for stern again as i've said to show how few fucks he has left to give and we get lines like i shall never have a finger in the pie and, <laughs> <laughs> and keyholes are the occasions of more sin and wickedness than all other holes in this world put together uh, and, you know, have Corporal Trim draw sperm with his cane, which the book reproduces as a drawing, uh, and talk about how making sausages is just like giving a hand job, and how horny Mrs. Wadman and her maid are for each other and for Trim and Toby. And yeah. Uh, so, so the long and short of this volume is, uh, is uh, uh, these two volumes. Uh, Mrs. Wadman goes to these great lengths to get Toby to tell her exactly where geographically people were you know like in flanders where did you get wounded toby except no we're definitely talking about his dick yeah. uh, <laughs> like, where where were you injured and, and and she does not like the answer one bit we just have this line unhappy mrs wadman and she kind of exits the narrative and then we end uh with i just i love these last two lines of the book lord said my mother what is this story all about a cock and a bull said yorick and one of the best of its kind i ever heard Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> okay, so can, is it okay to start doing yeah. the context? Yep. I know this is always so like, wow, there's so much, so much. I know. So yeah, uh, so yeah. I mean, there's 50 different things we could ta- we could talk about. Um, I've sort of like pulled out what I think is uh, different, maybe about the second half, than, and and like let's just talk about some different issues than we we did last week. You know, in in that vein, um, last time I talked a bit about Stern's place within the broad rise of the novel tradition um, and how he might bear more similarities with 20th century writers like James Joyce um, and also earlier 18th century writers like Swift and Pope, who are, you know, like a generation before when Stern is writing than the Fieldings and Richardsons who are closer to his own day. And I talked a little about, bit too about how Stern has been seen as parodying or satirizing the still emerging genre of the novel or form of the novel, I guess. 
But I think the last half of Tristram Shandy helps us see how Stern has something to tell us about a specific vein within the novel genre, which is sentimentalism. And much like Stern versus the novel itself, his relationship seems kind of both in love with it and bemused by it and sort of this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think he's, you know, he already said about Elizabeth, he's kind of just like, LOL, what the fuck do we think we're doing here? But I also think it's kind of captivating, whatever it is. And in previous episodes, we've talked uh, quite a bit about how the sentimental novel has a heyday in the US uh, in the decades leading up to the Civil War. And how there's a powerful political aspect to it in this country, as well as skepticism about what its politics actually are and the limits to that. So basically, in the U.S., um, the sentimental novel becomes an abolitionist genre. You know, people like Harriet Beecher Stowe and Harriet Jacobs, and a lot of others are using feeling and the production of feeling and the reader to motivate a political response against slavery. But that genre of American literature has this lineage to the sentimental novel of the British 18th century, uh, which also had political applications that were in some ways very similar to the U.S. version. Um, and an abolitionist movement targeting the Atlantic slave trade does does start in Britain in the 1700s. But the, the British sentimental novel also has this whole separate rich history tradition and set of discourses running through it. The thing, the funny thing about the sentimental novel in the United States is that um, it did like really explode around, you know, slavery and even like pro-slavery too, as well as there are a ton of pro-slavery um, mm-hmm. sentimental novels. But there are also like weird ones in the 18th century too that are more – they seem more British. Like there are mm. ones that are cautioning against horniness and other social ills. <laughs> Um, you know, but like they are all so they like track much more social problemy than the British ones that I've read, but I've read m- not that many British ones, uh, I think. That's interesting so. then. So, may- so maybe it's less that like the American sentimental novel, the 19th century is like a callback in some way and more it's like it, it's a tradition that gets going on both sides of the Atlantic, but it just has a little bit more staying power in the US than it does in Britain. Meaning it lasts for longer? Yeah, exactly. It lasts for longer. Although, I mean, it's not its not like Victorian novels don't have sentimental strains in them. You know what I mean? It's just not – they just tend – there's not much uh, in Britain in the 19th century that is typed as sentimental fiction in a way that there still is in the in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. it, it like really pops off differently then. Yeah. Right, and they're interrupted by different uh, for genres, I guess. Yeah. Uh, no, that, I mean that – yeah, that, that, so- that sounds right to me. But okay, so where the British version of this gets going, it, it arises in the 1740s and 50s um, with people like Samuel Richardson. I mean, he's maybe like one of the main progenitors of it. And basically, you can understand the sentimental novel as a distinct genre of the novel more broadly by thinking of it as novels that are really, really into getting you to cry. <laughs> um, they're like they're still doing <laughs> the whole interior psychology and individual in the world thing, but they're super invested in provoking a lot of emotional response in the reader. And so for someone like Richardson, this is also the key to like the moral system that his novel's trying to create, right? So like Richardson is going to reform the very much would-be rapist Mr. B of, mm-hmm. of Pamela into a, quote, virtuous husband by teaching him how to feel right 
and you, the reader, into being virtuous by making you sympathize and cry about young Pamela's plight and think how heartwarming it is that her, you know, virtue reformed Mr. B or whatever black is. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it Pamela that's like a thousand pages? <laughs> no, Pamela is a spry 450 pages. Clarissa is like 1500 pages. Clarissa. I think Clarissa is still the longest novel in the English language. Well, that sounds like a colossal waste of time. We will not be doing that. It looks stupid. It, <laughs> I, like if yeah. you look at the on a, it looks dumb to, that someone will try to read it. There is a lot of scholarship about Richardson, and actually, like a lot of like sort of feminist criticism of Richardson that is fairly sympathetic to him. I think, and and for I like for very good reason. I mean, I you know that he that he you know it's like he's sort of limited by his time, but he actually is like sort of trying to like write the perspective of a you know like a 15, 16 year old girl in a way that you know the claim is he's quite fresh, and I mean he's doing really interesting things with gender and gender construction. But I still I can't get past how fucking stupid and ponderous those novels are also like you <laughs> slang the door wide open for like the realist novel to be eight million pages thank you george elliott <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no he did not I reading mean, you either he did absolutely and and yeah so like it, it, you know in the set of metal it doesn't matter that the plot is stupid and boring and ridiculous and henry fielding loved dunking on that shit which we'll get to in a few weeks when we do joseph andrews it, but as long as he got you crying, Richardson was happy. And, and, and Sam, <laughs> our friend, <laughs> our friend Samuel Johnson, uh, redeeming himself from last week's shame when he claimed that Tristram Shandy didn't own, which he's so wrong He's about. Wrong. Um, he, he had this epic bird about Richardson, which masquerades as a compliment. Uh, and I, I, I've always loved this, sir. If you were to read Richardson for the story, your impatience would be so much fretted that you would hang yourself. <laughs> <laughs> But you must read him for the sediment and consider the story as only giving occasion to the sediment. So, so while this is happening, right? While while this new version of the novel is emerging, there's a ton of 18th century moral philosophy that goes alongside the literary movement. Adam Smith, you know, famously, this is so good. So good. Yeah, I know. I'm like, we're in Katie's territory again. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Um, so yeah, I mean, Adam Smith, he's of course the Wealth of Nations dude, but he has this much more interesting earlier guys as the does cry and give us a boner dude. He he has this bonkers. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was what Smith thought. <laughs> that is. He has this bonkers treatise called The Theory of Moral Sediments, which was published in 1759, same year the first two volumes of Shandy come out. And Smith tries to basically anchor a moral system on what he sees as humans' innate capacity for sympathy. And he says we have this capacity because effectively it feels good to sympathize, um, both to receive the comfort of a friend's sympathy, uh, but also to experience someone else's emotional pain in this vicarious, muted way, right? So, like, it feels good to, like, grieve, but, like, like when you're, it's it's not your problem; it's your friend. So you can kind of just get the pleasure of the grief without the actual trauma. Like capital it, is dope. Thank you, Adam Smith. I'm done. I. It is some. If you like sad, if you like to see sad people, then yes, he had a coherent system. It is some pretty sociopathic shit. But 
but uh, yeah, and and so right, like you know, so Smith has earlier roots, and you know, David Hume was another one's writing about this stuff. Many others they go back at least to the 17th century and really before that. There was this guy named Robert Burton who wrote this enormous book called The Anatomy of Melancholy in 1632, where he's really trying to understand like the physiological origins of feeling. And Stern actually satirizes the shit out of Bert, Burton and Tristram Shandy, um, which is it, it's kind of so esoteric that uh, it's going to be sort of lost on a modern reader, me included. I just I don't really know what the fuck he's pointing to in those passages. Um, Got to go read another nine hundred book page book to get exa- it. Yeah, I'm, and I'm not going to do that. I like Tristram Shandy quite enough as is. Um, but yeah, so Stern has a amb- very ambivalent relationship to the sentimental novel and all of these debates. On the one hand, it sort of looks ridiculous in Tristram Shandy, and and Stern always has the sentimental buddied up against a dick joke. <laughs> but like on the other hand, I think he kind of loves it. Like so, right after Shandy, he writes a sentimental journey, as I've said, uh, and again that that sort of retells Book Seven and is based on Stern's real life trips through France, but this time through the alter ego of Parson Yorick rather than Tristram. And it's definitely a satire, the sentimental novel, but I think a satire in the lightest and really a most appreciative vein, and in. In fact, in the sentimental journey, he takes a, sw- a swing at the decidedly unsentimental satirist Tobias Smollett, who I very much stand. Um, but Stern writes, "What a I, grumpy I, fuck that guy was." Totally, which is why his <laughs> books are so hilarious. But no, he does not. I, I would like to hang out with Larry Stern, Tobias Smollett, maybe for sure. So. But uh, but yeah, so th- this great lie with his sentimental journey, and then I will end. The learned smell fungus uh, tra- tra- traveled from Boulogne to Paris and from Paris to Rome and so on. But he set out with the spleen and jaundice and every object he passed was discolored and distorted. He wrote an account of them, but was nothing but the account of his miserable feelings. So, yeah, let's talk about the sentimental novel. Everywhere you go, there you are. <laughs> All those who wander are not lost. Lord of the Rings feelings. <laughs> Uh, but like that, that line about Smollett, I love too, because it's like, one, it's this great dug on Smollett, like smell fungus. That's such a hilarious name. <laughs> oh, yeah. But but like just I stink face, just call him stink face. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. But like, yeah, I mean, he is like, again, a sentimental jerk. He's like, yeah, the sentimental is kind of goofy. But I think that's a serious claim. He's like, dude, you're such a fucking hard on. You don't let yourself have like joy or like feel things. Yeah. And that's dumb, you know, so. Okay, so let's do it. Let's do the sentimental novel. Somebody teach sad, dumb me what that is doing here. Can I ask a question? Or Tristan, we can start wherever you want to. I have like some questions. Could we do a horny one? Yeah, take us wherever you want to go. That's fine with me. Okay, so here's like what I am thinking about. The idea is, this is a more general thing that we could sort of go anywhere with, but it's like the idea is that crying is good not just because there's squirt squirt coming out of your eyes Mm -hmm. but there's often this idea about mingling tears and that it would be a thing that would connect the reader to the book bodily Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so but in this case stern sort of like wants both he wants your bodily reaction you're like he wants involuntary he's interested in involuntary bodily reactions like blushing uh like pissing shitting Mm -hmm. i'm sure squirting he'd be into uh, you know like (laughs) yeah 
crying. So it's like all this shit that's about being out of control and shit that's out of your control. But the sentimental novel is so on rails that uh, I I want to say that's where the comedy comes from. But I have no fucking idea. Like I, I just since I knew we were going to talk about the sentimental novel, I just did the eggplant water squirt emoji and just kind of thought about it through that lens and like saw, you know, kind of thought about what happened. And I, and I don't, I don't really know. Like what's what here. I would tie it back to just like, well, we talked a lot about last time, just how like into the physical object of the book Tristram Shandy is like, like it, it want it. So it wants to be this narrative, this disembodied narrative that exists in the world as all novels sort of like purport to be, but also like, no, it's about you holding this physical thing right now. And like that kind of emotional, like bodily reaction of the reader provides yet another sort of physical tie in to whatever the fuck is happening in the mind and in the feelings as well, you know? Um, so that, no, that's actually, that's really interesting. I, I now I want to go back and reread this kind of looking for those, those, those sort of moments. I mean, okay. So is it, can I just take us to a moment that I was like, oh, I think this is hilarious, but it's also like where, comedy and the sentimental come together is that cool yeah of course okay so i'm in volume eight chapter 34 mm-hmm. uh and so we get all this like we get this bit about like corporal trim comes in and is like uncle toby your thin stupid pants aren't gonna work for you and um <laughs> we're talking about love and walter's like plato and he says Love, you see, is not so much a sentiment as a situation, my favorite (laughs) line in this novel, into which a man enters, as my brother Toby would do, into a core, meaning body, Mm -hmm. no matter whether he loves the service or no, being once in it, he acts as if he did and takes every step to show himself a man of prowess. Um, And then further down this page, for this reason, continued my father, Stating the case over again, notwithstanding, all the world knows that Mrs. Wadman affects my brother Toby, and my brother Toby, contrarywise, affects Mrs. Wadman, and no obstacle in nature to forbid the music striking up this very night, yet will I answer for it that the self-same tune will not be played this twelve month. And so, like, maybe I'm wrong, but like that sentence is like it's not a sentiment so much as a situation, meaning like a like jokes time. Mm-hmm is something that it's like, but it is a sentiment. And it, well, another thing too, it, it draws attention. I think he affects and she affects is like, that's a sentimental set of attachments. It is. Um, and it's also like a sort of structural sort of like performance that the, that the individual enters into, right. That like, so the, the, yeah, it's like the, 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 the sort of like, it's the structure that's kind of producing the feeling. Mm-hmm. And that actually, that actually does have real roots in Smith. Like, I mean, what, cause like what, you know, a theory of moral sentiments is like many hundreds of pages. And a lot of what he's talking about is like, okay, but what are situations where you could sympathize? And like, well, you know, if you heard, he's got this really fucked up, although it's, it's also sort of like, it, it ends up being kind of a claim about like racism, but like, it's like, if there's an earthquake in China, an Englishman probably isn't going to care that much, but he, but, but if he, like, if he hurts his little finger, that'll, 
that'll be much more proximate to him because he's basically saying that it's like, you know, it, like just just hearing about a sort of tragedy like that, that it, there's all these other kind of like, well, where like what proximity does it bear to you? Like what relationship do you have with who it affects? Like did the person who and another thing he says, it's like if a person like is like too sad it makes us uncomfortable and then we don't want to sympathize anymore. Right? <laughs> We're like backing away uncomfortably. Yeah, exactly. So, right. So, I mean, so it, like, it is about feeling, but it's about like feeling that has to like take place under these like sort of very kind of performative sort of circumstances and to be legible to us in a way that lets us enter into uh, these effective bonds with each other, if that makes sense. Yeah. Cause it, well, it does have to be like, it has to be legible in some way, but it depends on like what what level because for Toby, he is he wouldn't say he wouldn't describe things in the same terms as Mrs. Wadman would, even if they're having the same sort of they're part of the same structure together because mm-hmm. they're together. Yeah. But also like just to go back to the to the main shit about this, it sounds fucking weird. Like it all sounds incredibly fucking weird and clinical and bizarre, but it is the sort of thing where we do go to movies to have a good cry and mope and shit. So yeah. he's, you know, like, so it's, it sounds more whack, I think, than it is. Meaning the sentence about sentiment sounds nuttier than what I think of as like the madcap tone of a situation. Well, okay. So there's a point about Stern. Uh, buried in here which is that the idea of um writing a whole book about moral sentiments and how like you like to watch people be sad and it's sadder to have your little finger cut off than an earthquake in china that's the fucking weird part like that's where the comedy always ends up is the philosophizing in the treatise mm. doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there there's real pathos in the thing, even if it's strange and comic. Like it's sort of sad when he cuts the tip of his dick off, and the uh, and Susanna is really upset about it. For you know what I mean, like so. Yeah, right. Well, and, and it is like it, it is that like sort of enlightenment impulse to like philosophize and systematize like that. Like if there is like a pervasive target of satire in this novel, that's what it is. Like anytime, anytime there is like this like reference to these like big debates or whatever it's always like a joke you know what i mean like it's, it's never like oh yeah and you know what like Locke, he really has it figured out it's like yeah he's kind of a you know he's kind of, he's kind yeah. of dumbass, you know right <laughs> wait did i have too much fun with this book because i thought it was kind of funny when he gets the tip of his dick whacked off or like oh no it's totally fun endless like toby will they won't they uncle toby mrs wadman and her like the hole in her dress <laughs> it's it's hard it would be impossible to argue that it's not funny but it's also it's uh, it's hard not to be a little bummed out too well, right, and and I th- and I think like book seven, right, where like with the specter of death over it. Oh like, yeah, that, that, that is real- a different tone. But it's still, but it's still funny. You know what I mean? So like that. So like pa- like pathos yeah. and humor, like are really inner. And 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 a lot of the book, it's like humor is kind of the more sort of dominant of that of that sort of like arrangement. But then there are moments where it flips, and it, you know. Um, uh, but but I think they're always really intertwined, right? And I mean, yeah. I think that's where like we get a we get we find ourselves in like a 
I don't mean an unstable relationship to the sentimental novel because like for all of the wackiness of this book, Stern has enormous command of it. Mm -hmm. But that the sentimental novel is like, he's doing the most fucked hilarious version of it only in pieces. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, I do think that he's like that for all of this novels, like, endless digressions that it's beautifully constructed to me it actually like holds together beautifully even though it's like calling it coherent is kind of a wild thing to say but (laughs) i'm not no but to return to something we talked about way long ago when we were talking about burke the sentimental is supposed to be beautiful and a sentimental or um fuck tristram shandy is sublime like for sure yeah 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. you know like it's but it's just fl- flip it and reverse it. No, totally. And and I also think this gets to a lot of like the bodily discourse and, and humor, which we definitely should go to and talk about. But I do want to just like so I I, I meant there you know I, I mentioned the connection like the kind of pol- like the sort of like real world sort of politics of it. There's this one moment in in chapter in volume nine that I just want to acknowledge um, because it do- like it, yeah it does sort of like enter into that um, and so like. This moment was actually probably the result of a former slave named Ignatius Sancho, who became a very prominent abolitionist in the 18th century, who wrote Stern as like, hey, I love your sermons. I love your writing. Could you say something anti-slavery in your novels? Um, and he act- Stern actually did write like a, a fairly, you know, kind of famous allegory against slavery and a sentimental journey. But he also we also think that this moment in, in volume nine came out of like Sancho asking that. And so this is like Trim's describing like uh, his brother's wife and her sausage shop. But we have just this moment that I always I'm like this is this feels so I don't know, in some ways out of place in this book but and in, in, but i think that goes with um, a lot of the way the book works as well so uh, this is chapter six of volume nine when tom and please your honor got to the shop there was nobody in it but a poor negro girl with a bunch of white feathers slightly tied to the end of a long cane flapping away flies not killing them tis a pretty picture said my uncle toby she had suffered persecution trim and had learnt mercy she was good and please your honor from nature as well as from hardships and there are circumstances in the story of that poor friendless slut that would melt a heart of stone said trim and some dismal winter's evening uh, when your honor is in this humor they shall be told you with the rest of Trim's story for that uh, for it makes a part of it um, then do not forget trim said my uncle toby a negro has a soul and please your honor said the corporal doubtingly i am not much versed corporal quoth my uncle toby and the, the things of that kind but i suppose god would not leave him without one any more than thee or me it would be putting one sadly over the head of another quoth the corporal it would so said my uncle toby why then and please your honor is a black wench to be used worse than a white one i can give no reason said my uncle toby yeah it's just that that and also i should note like the the term slut in the 18th century has a much less kind of like uh it, like sort of pointed a charge to it that it that it does in modern usage, but I've always I've always just been like, wow, this is this is kind of a moment out of nowhere. But it's yeah, sort of does- I mean, I don't I I think it's like a kind of a lovely moment. But for me, when I came across it and put my little flag on that page, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it has some commonalities with how, like, sentiment and feeling is treated elsewhere, but it also, it's just a, it's a very, I don't know, I I still am not quite sure what to think of that moment. Um, Although I do think that backstory of, you know, Ignatius Sancho writing to Stern is pretty interesting. I mean, is it? So the the line after where you stopped reading is that, um, you know, I can give no reason why 
that a black wench is to be used worse than a white one and uh, only cried the corporal shaking his head because she has no one to stand up for her. And I think that that's like an important moment too, right? That it's like this this woman as we see her in the scene um, seems not to have like someone protecting her, which is like mm-hmm. weird in this particular novel because most of the women seem not to, like the white women. Yeah, no, that's true. That is they kind of get up to their own fucking business, which is actually really interesting too. Yeah. But we don't see like people in fl- you know like standing around so, like we don't get those the, those like we don't get her equivalent anywhere. Do we? No, I totally agree. We do not get her equivalent. I'm just saying that like for whatever the novel is doing with these women who do whatever they want, we know that it's the backstory that they have a person to stand up for them. Mhm. That they're protected. Which also just, I mean, I think one like function vis-a-vis the novel as a whole, it might have is it's like, you're so you're inclined to like, you know, laugh and laugh. This is, this is a, this is a book of humor, right? I mean, it really kind of raunchy humor, but like, oh shit, this is like an extremely serious claim that's being made here. And then we're right back into the, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's almost like. I don't know, like what, wherever, whatever position you wind up at, like, oh, I got a handle on how Stern's using feeling or something mm-hmm. like that. He's like, yeah, but do you? Because I can do something entirely different with that too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, that's what he's thinking. Right. Um, Cause he's like thinking, it's also that, like, what do we got, 12 feelings at a time right here? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. At least. So, yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that moment, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of in an oblique way talking about slavery, um, like that, that's the sort of like serious and kind of like, you know, active politic version of the sentimental, um, which is largely not what this novel's doing. I think that's one reason why that, that scene feels, feels a little bit, uh, out of whack. And as we've and said, very abbreviated, right? Like it's a page. It, it is. And I mean, I, and I think it, it would be really, it would be difficult to really be like, oh, so see, there's an abolitionist politic here. I think a, a sentimental journey, it's a little bit more sustained, but it's still, it is a kind of striking, like, well, this is, this seems to be like a very kind of serious political claim that is, that is being made here um, briefly. But most of the last two volumes are about boners and <laughs> ways of talking about fucking, uh, but with except not quite. And 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 I and we sort of you know like the I think one interesting part of the sentimental novel, and this was always a lot of there was a lot, always a lot of like anxiety and, and criticism about this is just is the like physical bodily response and emotion right <laughs> that like uh, th- that there was a lot Swooning. of ex- What's that? Swooning. Swooning and also, you know, crying is leaking fluids. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, like there's a there's a lot of anxiety about that. Ed Stern loves that anxiety and just goes wild with it. So <laughs> I'm just gonna share a few paragraphs from Mrs. Wadman's attempts to to woo Uncle Toby. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take us to volume eight, uh, chapter sixteen. I believe I have told you, but I don't know. Possibly I have. Be it as it will, tis one of the number of those many things which a man had better do over again than dispute about. That whatever town or fortress the corporal was at work upon, during the course of their campaign, my Uncle Toby always took care on the inside of his sentry box, which was towards his left hand, to have a plan of the place, fastened up with two or three pins at the top, but loose at the bottom for the conveniency of holding it up to the eye, as occasions required. So that when an attack was resolved upon, Mrs. Wadman had nothing more to do when she had got advanced to the door of the sentry box, 
but extend her right hand and edge it at her left foot at the same movement to take hold of the map or plan or upright or whatever it was, and with outstretched neck meeting it halfway to advance it towards her on which my uncle Toby's passions were sure to catch fire, for he would instantly take hold of the other corner of the map in his left hand, and with the end of his pipe in the other, begin an explanation. That pipe comes up a lot. I'm just going to, like, put a pin uh, in that one. I, lo- I love the pipe shit. Yeah, it's great. Um, <laughs> when the attack was advanced to this point, the world will naturally enter into the reasons of Mrs. Wadman's next stroke of generalship. Yeah, let's start start noting those words, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> which was to take my Uncle Toby's tobacco pipe out of his hand as soon as she possibly could, which under one pretense or other, but generally that of pointing it more distinctly at some redoubt or breastwork in the maps. Uh, oh, we're talking about fortifications, right? <laughs> she would <laughs> affect before my Uncle Toby, poor soul, had well marched above half a dozen toises with it. It obliged my Uncle Toby to make use of his forefinger. I bet it did. Um <laughs> The difference it made in the attack was this, that in going upon it, as uh, in the first case, with the end of her forefinger against the end of my Uncle Toby's tobacco pipe, she might have traveled with it along the lines from Dan to Beersheba, had my Uncle Toby's lines reached so far without any effect. For as there was no arterial or vital heat at the end of the tobacco pipe, it could excite no sediment. It could give neither fire nor pulsation or receive it by sympathy. T'was nothing but smoke. Whereas in following my Uncle Toby's forefinger with hers, close through all the little turns and indentings of his work, pressing sometimes against the side of it, then threading upon its nail, then tripping it up, then touching it here, then there, and so on. It sets something at least in motion. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus uh, Christ. Oh, yeah. That, uh, Steamy shit right here. Uncle Toby <laughs> laying that pipe. But yeah, I mean, so like that, right, that exciting sympathy, right? I mean, there we hear already that language of like the proximity of like the sentimental and emotion to just fucking, you know, um, Stern kind of goes, goes wild with that. Uh, but I, yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, like a lot of the final two books are just an extended dirty joke, a dirty joke, which is great. But I do wonder if there's a way in which they don't relate you know, it, it's it doesn't it isn't like very much like a, a, a you know a very conscious uh, satire on the kind of like mode of narration that the whole novel is kind of uh, is operating in. You know, meaning the sentimental, yeah, tradition or like the sentimental tradition. I guess what I mean is that like. <sighs> You know, this is a book that, you know, we're talking about Locke, you know, we're talking about we're we're doing this like very kind of like esoteric satire on like 17th century sort of biology and like 18th century moral philosophy. And then there's dick joke after dick joke after dick joke. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is like one thing I think is great about that passage is we sort of see those two kind of levels operating in unison with each other. Like the, 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 dick, <laughs> the dick jokes are serious, damn it. <laughs> that the matter of feeling is like in the m dashes and the like feeling yeah yeah yes no the matter of feeling is about feeling and squeezing and sucking and fucking and what i I mean that's kind of like that's getting back to that question of like love is it a sentiment or a situation Mm -hmm. and this is like both yeah yeah, yeah. No, I mean, th- this is this is giving you a very elaborate situation, right? Um, to to think about that and to kind of to kind of stage that. 
You know, it's also funny because it reveals how absurd it is when people try to play innocent in in some respects. Like, I think that that's part of it because this isn't this is anything but a fully formed thought. But it's like, okay, so if this novel is about empiricism, among other things, then it's about learning stuff and you'd have to like you'd have to learn stuff to know something is dirty right like this might go over this goes over people's heads but also if you read it looking for that or knowing it's gonna be there then you find it everywhere so like i i don't know what to i'm trying to figure out i guess how (laughs) where does carnal knowledge fit into the general pantheon of knowledge like is there you know i mean is is tristram is uh stern trying to do like filth pedagogy (laughs) because he's he's teaching it's like this is so dumb he's teaching you how to read in the way that like sentimental fiction is teaching you how to read for feeling only he's trying to teach you how to read for dick jokes yeah yeah, no, and I like think- teaching you how to know when you're looking at someone be horny. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, because they're always like the last. There's always somebody who's the last to know, and it's usually the one who's like dick is in someone's hand. Yeah, it's yeah, always yeah, yeah. Toby who's the last to know, or the chapter where somebody gets like jerked <laughs> off by having their knee stroked. Yeah, yeah, Trib. Yeah, Trib. That's right. That uh, he, which it, we we get that uh, delightful bit. Just um, just uh, I think a few chapters before this. Um, so we're we're already kind of like very much sort of like primed to be be in that mood. And of the reading. sausages. It's also because like every version of sexual activity is like the same kind it's like everybody's getting fingered mm-hmm. or jacked off yeah 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 well and, and i also do think like with this passage like we're back to uh what we talked about so much last time which is like the instability of language but but also how like how like meaning is like contextually produced it's not just universal like i mean like you know what he's talking about like breast work and stroking and all of this shit they're reading a fucking map right, right. i mean like there is nothing less horny yeah, they're and reading erotic. a fucking map all right yeah, yeah right. yes exactly so, and I, hey, yeah, I, 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 you know, I unintentionally doing Lawrence Stern right there. Nothing less horny than uh, than a goddamn map, and yet it's like, oh yeah, you you think that this isn't horny? Uh, I, I beg to differ, good, <laughs> good sir. But we also know that Uncle Toby has um has like maps and fortifications because he can't uh get down. Yeah, that's right. Right, like we that's learned right. that from earlier. So now we're. It's so funny. Like Stern actually does resolve a lot of his like wild plots. Hmm. So yeah. like we know that that's what he does like that's what Toby does like that's his that's how he gets his rocks off. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And so we come back to it knowing like oh, we bring a lady into the map scene. <laughs> well, and what actually happens no, then. And, and, and I'm glad you pointed that that aspect out too because I mean I don't this is something else that we've been wanting to get to for these these two episodes and now we're you know <laughs> we only have a a few minutes left uh, I, we could do a whole fucking season on just this book but um, yeah it's somebody like, do that yeah, yeah that'd be fun somebody do a podcast <laughs> a, a short real, run 
a short run read along of, of Tristram Shandy, I oh, would yeah. subscribe. Yeah. Like, uh, that, that women are largely missing from this narrative. I mean, there's a lot of talk about women and, yeah. and you know, w- w- women characters, but like so much of it is like the male voice. And I think one thing there too, is that like, because like so much of the satire is laddie directly on sort of like masculinist bullshit, be it like, you know, like w- Walter's pompous, like, oh, I'm an enlightenment, uh, you know, squire kind of shit or like, you know, fucking Toby's dick anxieties and all of that. I mean, I think that that's part of it. It's like it, it is it is it is a, like a, a, a masculine masculinist perspective that is really being skewered. But that feels also a little bit too neat to just leave it there. You know, um, I mean, I think like as much as I. I actually really love the later two books. I I think my favorite is the first one and the first and second. And I think part of that is like thinking about Tristram's mom up there fucking rolling her eyes at all this like dudes running around knocking into each other, like pulling the forceps out of the bed, like doing all this like farce bullshit well it's like she's the person having a baby dum-dums she is and and even though we don't really get many lines at all from her she's so much fucking smarter than walter and and like and and like and the the book like tries to like i don't know get get you to like do something misogynist with that but then i think it it ends up kicking you for doing that because it's like oh yeah like walter would get so pissed because like he would say something she didn't understand and she would just ignore it and it's like Right, but Walter is a fucking dumbass, you know. Yeah. Like it's she, she, it's not like oh, she's just you know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she's not curious about like these philosophers or whatever. It's more her husband is a buffoon, and she recognizes that. Like, why would you ask a buffoon to follow up? And he question? thinks all this bullshit nonsense that she's yeah. like, okay, that whatever, like that's fine. And yeah. I think of that like it's so awful and walter that like they have this arrangement it's in like the first few pages where she has told him like i want to go to if i have a kid i want to go to london to give birth Mm -hmm. and there's like a like a mistaken bait like pregnancy thing where they go to he's like if you go to london but it's a mistake then you have to stay in our house and have a baby yes yes which is just it's, it's that that is a real bizarre negotiation yeah and it, well and i also love that she had these like le- very legal contracts drawn up to yeah. like make, make sure it would happen yeah but it's because like you know walter is gonna pull some wild bullshit uh-huh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? right like it's not you like she seems perfectly reasonable to me in that negotiation yeah okay yeah. yes she does but here's the thing that actually like so tristan i didn't remember that she's the one who had the legal papers drawn up. Yeah. So that changes my opinion of her. You like her less now or you have no no further opinion? Now I feel like she is just as fucking like like no I don't, I mean no one's as fucking ridiculous as Walter but but the very fact that she participates in that in a way that's like she wants to codify how her like the buffoonish nonsense that her husband does in in some kind of like official legal capacity it means either she is a comic genius who cares about posterity you know like the future (laughs) generations laughing or 
she is as fruitful a subject of comedy as he is, Mm -hmm. and we just don't get to see it. Because anybody who would do this, like, who would involve themselves in a legal negotiation about this when you know that he's going to, like, pull some horseshit with the carriage that has, like, a dick drawn on it or whatever. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, I think that I had read it as though, like, you know, she was like, what will work? Well, okay, let's get it on paper. Maybe that'll work and he can't, like, talk his ass out of it. But, of course, she's naive in that moment. I had looked at it as naivete, that her outlook was like, maybe the one way I can get one up on Walter is to be, like, piece of paper. Yeah. Although if she's, like, fruit for comedy, I'm also, like, super fine with that. I mean, I, well, I, I think that, like, because I think that, like, the, the one sort of commonality of human nature is that, like, all of us are, like, satiric subjects for Lawrence Stern. Like, all of us have our bullshit. Yeah. And it's like, and, and this, you know, okay, so the version of this we got was largely through Walter and Toby and, and, uh, and, and Dr. Slop, like, and, and Yorick hanging out being, like, the dudes. But, like, it, you know, it, it probably, uh, a lot of it probably looks the same if, you know, we are in a different room, you know, <laughs> with the oh, yeah. with the shandy women um but but also i guess like where stern who has like so much you know, there's so much homage to like jonathan swift differs is like where with swift it's like yes we're all satiric subjects because we suck like <laughs> i think stern's like we're all we're human beings we're human beings we and we're fucking goofy like and thing. ridiculous yeah. and that's great you know i mean i think of like the nuns doing what feels like punch and judy bits yeah 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 yeah. You know, like my virginity, like it just is this moment of like, what the hell are you two doing? Yeah. That's like sexy, <laughs> sexy and pushing a jackass up a hill or whatever the hell they're doing. And it's, it's, you know, the jokes on women, I think are lighter touch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. But they're I not, mean, they're, they're not gone. No. So you so when I read this without knowing anything about Stern, what I thought was that he was really doing this end up of men kind of thing. And I was surprised to find out, in fact, that he sort of I know you can't do the bio. You can't read through a biographical lens. I know. But we can do what we want. We're not in an academic book right now. (laughs) So I'm going to do I'm be I'm being at book club. Um. But I do think it was borne out by reading by finishing the book that it I thought that it was going to be really a send up of men. And it turns out to be just happened to not be a send up of women because he doesn't seem terribly involved in the buffoonery. Like, I don't know what the difference meaningfully is, except that we get less of it and we get more variety. Like, maybe we get more Mm -hmm. variety. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it's like the particulars of what I think that one of like for me the most significant thing that Walter is doing is like a send up of pomposity or like pretension. And I think that like part of what you're saying, maybe, and maybe I'm wrong, is that like we don't think of women as being pretentious. And so that's not the character that we get. I think that's true. I think that's a that's like a fucking great point. Yeah, because they're not the keepers of knowledge, so they don't get to have that nose in the air, up the ass, whatever. And they can't lose deal. a wiener, so they can't, right. I, which is like a signif- – again, like, let me just sort of like go – you know, who cares? But yeah. that's – that. They, this book cares. 
Yeah, yeah. No, and, and why and I think that's right too. It's like it's like Walter's pomposity and buffoonishness is like it, it is it is, you know, sort of culturally produced, right? It's like it's you know, I mean not that there weren't, you know, but like uh, a lot of uh, you know, in you know, France for instance like with the salon uh, culture and stuff like that. Women like involved in that you know, deeply involved in that kind of like, you know, intellectual sphere of the enlightenment. In rural Yorkshire, it's like th- this was this was like what the squire, did. you know, th- this was what you did yeah. as like like as like that that was like how you advertise your your gentlemanly status was by doing this and you know so yeah i mean the you know women characters are going to be equally ridiculous but it's just it's not it it's uh, you know it, it it is a it is a it, it is a kind of buffoonishness that is produced by um sort of cultural practice and the time that it's created well they're not going to whip their dicks out and call it plato you know right. like that's yeah. not yeah what do you think that's what Walter does, right? Like he's yeah. just like Plato is here, and it's just my dick in my hand. Exactly. <laughs> okay, Katie, I am like on tenterhooks. What awesome game are we playing? <laughs> well, the the game we're playing today is your dick named Plato or Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Um, my name Cicero. Is- I read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess. You'll never know what my dick is named, um, and it's definitely not Jonathan Edwards. That's that's <laughs> it's not. not that would be an unfortunate. Dick. If he weren't already dead, he'd be dead by hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Calvinism is <laughs> my dick. Um, <laughs> what, what could be better than a dick screaming at you about how you're damned to hell? <laughs> you know. Like, yes, yeah. that's exactly. <laughs> get one of those uh <laughs> but we're gonna do something a little more um shall we say uh carnal something that jonathan edwards and his his ilk would not approve of today even if they um, thought of it constantly <laughs> even if they thought of it constantly so we all have our hobby horses right you know we all have our hobby horses and one of my hobby horses is bad television programming and one such shining example of that is little show on TLC called Sex Sent Me to the ER. <laughs> I love terrible television, but my my time has been sucked away with Love Island. Well, other so many things get sucked away on this show that um, <laughs> nice, yeah, <laughs> and not in a way that anyone's happy at the end of. So. Given the sex accidents that occur in Tristram Shandy, I just thought that we would put them head to head mm. with. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> with uh, with the some of the sex accidents in Sex Sent Me to the ER, and see which ones we think come out on top. <laughs> oh my oh, God! Well, well, fair, yeah, good. This I'm is have to take a shower after this. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's do the matchup here. Number one, the classic God, you get your dick stuck in a doorknob <laughs> trying to fuck your girlfriend. Mm. Okay. okay. Versus you get your dick knocked off by a rock. <laughs> I still I, I love I love the comic genius of man gets hit and groin by football that is the first half of this book yeah me too okay. i'm gonna stick with uncle toby and his his uh 
that the plot of this book is is just revolves around two guys getting hit real hard in the dick. You know, <laughs> I, I, I will I will not argue with that because that that will forever be great. But getting your dick caught in something that I mean that that is kind of hard <laughs> to pass up as that's, a yeah as a punchline. Uh, I mean that's you know it's like because because I mean well the getting hit with the I mean it, that's you know that's very abject in its way. But like you get it stuck in a doorknob, you're you're stuck there. You know, like someone has to come to your house to Remove extricate. The uh, cut it out. Cut the do- whole door. Not yeah. yeah that, I, mean, I mean, I'm envisioning like firefighters showing up with like a, a chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> so I just right, I, that's I, funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I again, I'm never gonna not say that the man getting hit and the growing with football is is classic Hans Molman material. But uh, <laughs> but the uh, yeah, it's just there. There's too many. There's too many opportunities with the first one. You know. <laughs> Fair, fair enough. Okay, I will. I'll say this: the guy. So they, this the show involves um, interviews to camera, also, and the guy said um, that he had never experienced um, a more horrible and excruciating pain in his entire life. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, okay, so just to explain them. Also, just like I didn't explain the mechanics very well here, they took off the whole doorknob so he could stick his dick through it. Oh, <laughs> like oh, I see. Okay, so they like took un- used a screwdriver and and took the whole apparatus off. This seems like a colossal waste of time. But the, I mean, yeah. they like re- they seem too handy for this to happen. You know, yeah, they seem like you know it's not easy to remove a doorknob in quickly. And I'm also envisioning like you know just splitter with don't get stuck, but just splitters. You know, like- yeah, that's a fa- that's a that's a fair concern. I would yeah. suggest, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's well, well, we're only gonna have losers in uh, in this game. So <laughs> yeah, it's it all losers. Two. Okay, so choice from sex semi to the ER. So this woman got vibrating panties and <laughs> wears them out in public mm-hmm. to like a Target, and she gives her boyfriend the remote, and <laughs> he turns the remote up too high. And she passes out and gets a concussion. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Or somebody lifts you up to an open window to piss and (laughs) a a guillotine uh, situation occurs and you lose the tip. Just the tip. Oh, man. I mean, I always think a head injury is... The funniest joke that exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I <laughs> it also sounds like something was going right in the first one until it went very wrong, you know, <laughs> whereas yeah. like- it sounds like fun until an, a turn. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it, it, yeah. They're yeah. handy. They're imaginative. They're resourceful. Right. Yeah. Whereas in Tristram Shandy, it starts out as a bad idea. Yeah, and it's just like, man, I was just trying to take a piss, and now part of my dick's gone in from a window. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the I agree, I think the winner is the first one. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> okay. Also, uh, why did she tell them at the ER instead of just telling them that she slipped and fell? 
Well, I, you know, that's a great question. And I have another question for you. Why did she go on a television program? <laughs> <laughs> to tell the audience about her vibrating panties. And tell the world. That is true. I have to say, I don't get your dick stuck in a doorknob hole. But if it ever happens, never tell anyone that. You know, like, no. do, do not do not YouTube it. Uh, certainly, do not go on reality television. Yeah. Do people um, on the street and go, "Hey, doorknob dick guy"? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, okay. To add insult to injury, also they have they so they have on they have um to camera interviews and they also have reenactments and the reenactors are always slightly hotter than the people that it happened to which is it's just like the thing about reenactments yeah. Yeah. yeah of course um okay so this one's really bad there's a guy who is trying to find himself he's like on a on a spiritual journey and as part of that spiritual – well, a lot of nudity is involved as there is with every spiritual journey. So he's trying to locate his sexual spirit. Mm. But what hey. locates him is a lizard that slithers up his dickhole. <gasps> mm. uh, yeah. Versus Moment of silence. Okay. <laughs> R.I.P. to the lizard. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Goodness. Gives a whole new gonna, meaning to draining the lizard. Yeah, I'm gonna, gonna, <laughs> gonna need a gonna need a moment there. <laughs> yeah, we have to reflect on this. Let's reflect. Um, okay. Versus um Dr. Slop cuts your dick and balls off. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. You know what? Just get it over with, man. <laughs> That's a good, yeah, I'm with you. I think that just like, especially because I'm just, I, the problem with these sex on the ER bits is that I just play it out in my mind. So I'm like, oh, does it end up in your kidneys? I know. Yeah. I, that, the, 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 the second one, it would be like the second worst thing, but the first one is, <laughs> the, the first, the first one is the worst thing, thing that has yeah. ever happened to, a, <laughs> to a, anybody. A Okay, so it was so awful. Like the whole thing was so awful for everybody involved that they that TLC wound up managing to get the doctor who got the lizard out of his dick to like come on the episode, and she was like, "I'm still not okay." Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, the good news about yes, the good news about all the people who appear on the show is that like they volunteered to be on the show, they're okay. Just yeah. so you know, they're alive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th- they'll live to fuck another day. Yeah. <laughs> do we get a do we get a, a comparison between sex sent me to the R and the fact that Uncle Toby thinks a baby comes out your butthole? Um, would you like one? Because you can have one. I have so many sex sent me to the R ones. Um, <laughs> sure, it's just like my it. favorite, but in that book where he bleeps the word cunt because yeah. it's yeah. like the wrong under the woman or the right. Awesome. I, I still say that's not actually what Toby said. That's what Walter said that Toby said, you know. Oh, that's probably fair. You think he said anus? There's too many, there's too few letters for butthole. No, no, I think Toby got it right where the baby comes from. Oh. I think Walter then was like, no, my brother's a moron. He lost his dick in the war, you know, so. Well, Walter thinks all babies should come out of the tummy so they don't get head injuries. That's true. I think Walter thinks babies come out of the butthole. I th- That's, <laughs> yep. Okay. You know, I think we've cleared this up. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you do. 
I mean, front front butt back, but who can say? You know, <laughs> fair. But but we'll do the butts we'll, because um, quite People frankly, get things in buttholes on this show. I'm positive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh yeah, yeah. That one was actually there is one there is one about a butthole accident, but it was it's too awful. Um, <laughs> so we'll go with um, baby out the butt. Mm-hmm. Or this one's sort of a this one is like appropriate because it's about vicarious feeling, um, and it's about sympathy actually. So it's about high moral sentiment. Awesome. Um, a husband and wife are in their godly marriage bed, mm-hmm. engaged in the holy act of intercoursing, <laughs> when all of a sudden there's a pop. Oh no. My dick. Oh, it's broke, broke. broke. Broke dick, yeah. So, broke dick syndrome. So, hospital, hospital. We're all in the hospital. Now, your wife, of course, as a woman of God, what does she do? Well, call the whole neighborhood and uh, get a prayer circle going in the hospital <laughs> yeah. around your bed to, to prayers up for your broken dick. <laughs> So who's who's the biggest loser? Prayers up for your broken dick, or I think babies come out your doo doo ass. Oh, prayers up for sure. Yeah, the the, the prayer circle that that's that's amazing. That, that, oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, like, I'm kind of broken hearted for that guy yeah. for like four reasons. Yeah, it's just a tough. One. I mean, there are just there are just so many bad ones. Um, <laughs> just so many bad ones. Here's the I'll 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 use the spare for the uh for the last for the last of the OG. Th- thank you for that one, Megan. I enjoyed babies out out the butt, um, <laughs> which is where I am pretty sure they do come out of. I'm coming down on the side of Walter or Toby. Um, mm-hmm. we've talked about some real kings here, but now we're going to talk about a prince. That's right, Prince Albert. So oh, I had a, several guesses. Okay, go just tell us. Sorry. It's the one you'll never expect. (laughs) Okay. So the one thing that's really cool about Prince Albert piercing to do, if you're going to do that, if you're going to get your your dick pierced under the head, I'm not – look it up. If you want to know what it is, look it up. Yeah. I had to watch it. that right into Google. Yeah. Yeah. I looked at so many YouTube clips of the sex I mean, the ER. (laughs) The least you can do is Google. (laughs) (laughs) So the one cool thing to do when you've got a Prince Albert is to um, to keep it real hush-hush secret fun surprise. Mm-hmm. Sure. But what's less fun is, um, you know how some people can't wear like shitty Claire's earrings because the metal um, gives them like a like an Ooh, ear infection? A metal reaction in the tip of your dick, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a nickel <laughs> allergy, which I, believe it or not, had to go to the ER for. It was not a sex injury. It was a piercings. This is gross, and I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, were absorbed by the swelling. Ooh, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. yeah and nice. so I had to go to the ER. And they can't give you any anesthesia for something that's like a um terminus because the nerves don't there's no like blood flow uh so they had to be removed oh wow okay yeah by a doctor yeah Yeah, it was it was horrible i've heard of of some gnarly reactions with this stuff yeah ears this was my ears 
This is yeah. not. <laughs> oh my god! It was horrible, but it's not a story. I would. Well, I just told it on a podcast, so I guess it's a little late for that. But like, it's not filthy. No, it's not filthy. <laughs> for some reason, this is because of like because of the um it, because of the context. I just assumed that you were talking about nipple piercings. <gasps> oh, wow! No, yeah. no I was and not. wanted to die. That yeah, that That's would be <laughs> very terrible. Honestly, I feel like if it were a belly button piercing, that would also be like uh-huh. a new level of trauma. Yeah, like uh, ear ear sound bad, but probably as good as that situation could be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no. It's. Uh, mm. Not it's not in the center of my face. It's not in the center of my body. Like it was, it ended up being fine at the end of the day. Oh my god! But how awful! That's horrible. Well, well, you'll really understand what this poor poor lady went through because she had to go to the hospital because um, this dude who had those like boy band bangs (laughs) uh, and a goatee, yeah, you know, like. He um blew up blew out or blew out or p word with his oh, Prince man. Albert. Yeah. Um, oh, no. uh, well, yeah. Also, why is he wearing anything but stainless steel jewelry in his penis? Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna say I don't even know what we're comparing this to, but that one wins. That's just a horrifying thought. Oh, we're yeah. We're comparing it to your dad and uncle seriously considering taking you into the middle of the town square and showing everyone your different <laughs> Just them considering. I mean, yeah. Toxic yeah. vagina is still worse. I agree. Yeah. 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 That's all. That's all, folks. But my God, I I really went through something. <laughs> I kind bet of. you did. Yeah. I also, and I feel like Lauren Stern would have really loved this show. Yeah, sounds like. (laughs) All right, this has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find me on Twitter at Tusslersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod. And email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com, but only if you have an even dirtier story involving maps. Then the widow Wadman and Uncle Toby. <laughs> uh, our intro music is Lev Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate and review us and subscribe. We still have stickers and buttons. They're awesome. Write us a review and send us a picture. And next week we have Jack London's Call of the Wild. It's a trip. And our two-part second annual halloween spook fest after that with the monkey's paw and shirley jackson's the haunting of hill house so thanks comrades here comes people from my church who i don't really even know because i haven't really been to church in a while they're here to pray for you Uh, what's wrong what did you tell them nothing yet for pete's sake what happened paulo's broken (laughs) this is horrible this is Just the worst night of my life. Who in the world is Paolo? My... Oh dear me! His penis is broken! Oh my goodness, Paolo is his 
penis? Oh my. We, we need to pray for Paolo. We need to pray. <laughs>